Good morning, everybody. If you'd like, if you have a Bible with you, could you turn to Ephesians chapter three? If you're here for the first time, you've joined us at a point where we are just beginning to embark on a new series when we gather like this, uh, where we work through uh, what's called the Apostles' Creed. Uh, so before we look in particular at Ephesians chapter 3, I will, I'll read through uh, the entire creed, which will come up on the screens, uh, and then show you which part we're going to home in on today. So this ancient declaration of the Christian faith says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those situations where you've, you've needed to ask for directions, and someone has said those super encouraging words, oh, if I was trying to get there, I wouldn't start from here. Or maybe you've been in that situation where someone's asked you for directions and you thought, wow, you're, you're so off track, I'm not sure where to start. But I'll give it a go and the chances are you'll need to ask for directions again before you reach there. Um, it's fascinating, it's important, it's good to set off from a helpful starting point. That's what this creed does. There's a, a temptation now, and perhaps increasingly, that when we think about the things that are important, that we might start with ourselves, we might start with our own experience, we might just start with our desires, we, we might start with what needs to be done, we might start with the action. What should the Christian life look like? What should we be doing? And the, as we saw last week, the Apostles' Creed doesn't start there, it starts with these words, I believe. That's where it starts, it starts in a place of faith, and it doesn't start then with things about us that we believe in. It's not I believe in kind of what's inside of me. It's I believe in God. The creed starts there because the Bible starts there, the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Show us an excellent place uh, to start. So this, the creed starts with, the Lord, with God. You'll note that um, as it goes through, it will follow a, 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 that pattern of the, of the Trinity. I believe in God the Father. Then later on, I believe in Jesus Christ. Later on still, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And it's the first of those that we're going to look at today. The truth that God is the Father. Uh, a revelation that becomes clear through so many different passages in the Bible. We could go to so many different places. We could look into the Old Testament of, of God speaking to his people Israel, addressing them as his son. We could look at uh, Psalms where, where God is likened to a compassionate father who, who remembers that his children are made out of dust. 
we could, we could look at these, what Jesus said and taught um, about how he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus taught. When the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray, Jesus says, well, you, when you pray, pray this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Peter, uh, Paul isn't the only uh, apostle or writer of the New Testament who begins a letter, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're considering for the church, what is our mission? What does a risen, ascended Jesus call us to do, like those first disciples to whom he would say, go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So there's no getting away from it. And I, I would just love us to turn, if you haven't done already, to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm just going to look at a couple of verses and go through them phrase by phrase to see, well, what do we learn from this about getting to know God, the Father, and what difference does that make for our lives? So in Ephesians chapter 3, we're just going to look at verse 14 and 15, whilst kind of dotting around in other scriptures as well. Paul writes, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. If you want to find out what he prayed when he got onto his knees, you can just keep reading in that passage and elsewhere in Ephesians 2. But just looking there, we're going to see, I'm just going to look at three aspects of God's fatherhood. What is God like? Who is this heavenly father? Well, firstly, he is active. He is an active father. Just those words, for this reason, beg the question, well, for what reason? Why, Paul, are you getting down on your knees and praying to God the Father? For this reason is summing up the entire book so far. Um, and he started that sentence actually at the beginning of chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then before he says, I kneel before the Father, he, he, he kind of carries himself away again. He's, he's, he's enthusiastic He's not just writing as some kind of cold academic exercise. He is living with the realities that he's writing about. And so it, 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 he's writing things that perhaps he didn't first have in mind, but he's stirred about something and he just wants to get it out and talk to the Ephesian believers about it. So now he's, he's, he's done that. He comes back verses later for this reason. And that reason is, that God himself is a God who takes the initiative. God is a father who is on a mission. He is positively about something. He is not lazily nor silently minding his own business only to be disturbed by Paul, maybe other believers, demanding that he gets involved with his ideas. I wonder if you have an image in mind. This is 
one that springs to mind for me. I think my images reflect my generation. So uh, the, the guy behind the broadsheet newspaper, let's just imagine that he is someone's father. I, I understand this doesn't happen anymore, okay? We, but, but sometimes there might be people who are prone just to get behind these things instead. They're not quite as big, but they can be even more distracting. So the weekend comes along, and perhaps you could identify, some of you anyway, of a certain age, this is what, this is what you might see of a father. Kind of, give me my own space. I'm doing my own thing. Don't bother me now. And, uh, and maybe you're going to work out ways of kind of getting his attention. That's not what's happening here with Paul. It's because God Almighty is on a mission to save to build his church, and to draw people into his eternal family. Because of God being on a mission, that's why Paul is praying. That's why Paul is writing the letter. That's why Paul is traveling to different places. That's why Paul wants to talk about Jesus. That's why Paul's going to lay his life down for something that really matters. Why? Because God is about something, and God wants to draw us into it. So it's, God is not sat behind some cosmic newspaper it's more akin to a father figure who's running like a family business and wants to draw his children into it as a, as a delight. So I was, I was intrigued just to hear uh, early this week um, a, a story from his own childhood that Will shared. And uh, he spoke about how his dad would come along to the football pitch and, and watch the match that he was playing in. And I asked for Will's permission to, uh, to share this again uh, today. And uh, he just shared how, you know, his, his, at the end of the match, his dad would come to him and say, oh, it's a shame the match finished one all. And Will would say, Dad, we won, 3-1. Why, why is it? Is this, is this a case of just a dad being like un, unconcerned, really not particularly interested in what his lad's up to? Uh, far from it, what John was demonstrating is this great desire on the touchline to talk about Jesus to the other people who were watching the match. That's why he missed a couple of goals going in. Now, not too many years later, Will is still interested in football. And if you want to join his team, I'm pretty sure he'd be interested in having a chat with you. But what is Will also interested in? Sharing his faith in Jesus with others who might just happen to be on the touchline. Whose footsteps is he following in? His dad showed him something, modeled something, and it's his enthusiasm to get involved. God is about something, enthusiastically wanting people to be saved, and he's looking to involve us in what he is doing. Let's just look at what, how Jesus reveals uh, the heart of God, the activity of his father. We could look at John chapter 5. At a point where Jesus is defending himself against his critics, in John 5, verse 17, in his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer, very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do, he can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, 
the Son also does. We have a, a father who loves his son and is eager to show what he is doing, and he's active. It's not Jesus coming and saying, well, the father would be here, but he's too busy and distracted watching his favorite box set, so he couldn't make it. So I've come on his behalf to do what he should be doing. No, it's, it's a real partnership of love where God the Father is taking the initiative. So for us to say, I believe in God the Father, means knowing and infusing about the fact that God the Father is up to something. To say, I believe in God the Father, means I believe I'm going to discover purpose for my life and purpose for us together as we get to know him better. I wonder, how would you counsel a friend? How would you, how would you defend the Christian faith to someone who's skeptical if they say, well, if there is a God, why doesn't he do something? Why, why isn't he more active? Why, why isn't it more obvious? And at that point, the nervous Christian can say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. I see what you mean. Yeah, if only God were up to something. If only God were about some big plan to bless the whole world. Yeah, I feel your pain. Let's, let's pray. Oh, God, I pray that you'd reveal to me and my friend that, you know, you're not really just lazily behind the newspaper. But it's kind of a prayer that might be laced or, or a piece of advice that might be just laced in, in uncertainty or even unbelief. You know, today we might conclude the meeting with that, that phrase that someone once said to Jesus, I do believe, help me in my unbelief. I do believe there is a wonderful, heavenly, active Father who is on a mission to bless and make new the whole world. And he's drawing people into it. A God with a heart for millions and millions of people to know him for eternity. And that God would help us come to the point of not just nervously commiserating with the friend who thinks if only God would do something, but that we might be the friend who would say, I know it's hard in that area. Look at all that God has done. For hundreds, for thousands of years, for all eternity. And that God is powerfully at work for you who believe. So he is an active father. And as we go back to Ephesians chapter 3, what else do we see in just the next phrase that I've already referred to, really? Which can sound out of place for us. For this reason, I kneel or I bow. You know, Paul could just have written, as indeed he does in, in, in numerous other places, you know, for this reason, I pray. Because that's what he's doing. That's the activity. So why does he say, I kneel? Well, Probably because at various points, when he spoke to his heavenly father, he got down on his knees. Kneeling for us could seem way out of place. I was thinking about this week because the church I grew up in, up until about the age of 15, was called St. Philip and St. James. They couldn't quite choose which saint they wanted to go for, so we had two. And uh, that got shortened by those in the know. So we were a church that was just referred to as Pip and Jims. And uh, I love that church. I learned a lot. And uh, the building was, was not brand new, but it was probably built in the 1960s or maybe 70s. And we had pews. Those pews were wooden, 
not quite the old-fashioned type that we might be familiar with. And uh, as, a, as a young boy, I was, I'd be sat on the pew, and I'd look in front, at the back of the pew in, in front of me, and there, there was this little hook, and on the hook was a quite substantial cushion. And for me, these cushions, they just got in the way. They weren't as attractive as the ones uh, that might be up on the screen. Uh, just quite ordinary. And I thought, just thinking about it now, I thought, well, that means that when this building was built and fitted out, there would be some committee or, that was getting together thinking, well, how, you know, we, there are certain things that are essential for us to have in this building to be the kind of community of faith that we want to be. So we're going to spend some money on cushions. And the point of those cushions was to take them off the hook at your liberty, we were never told you had to, and, and put the cushion on the floor so that when it came to pray, we could comfortably get down on our knees. What that church did is probably what lots of churches have done in the past 30, 40 years, is replace the pews with more comfortable cushioned seating, other than you hardcore folk who prefer the balcony, rocking it. Um, isn't that a fans fascinating transition? Like nowadays, we think we want your bottom to be comfortable. Back in those days, the church would be thinking, we want your knees to be comfortable. Hard seat, cushion on the floor. But now we've got cushions on the seat and nothing for you to kneel on. Behind that is, a, is an expectation of court when we pray, and it can just seem so old-fashioned. You, you might see it in a, in, a, in a film or some representation, someone probably of a certain generation saying their praise, prayers before they go to bed gets down on their knees. And we all recognize that's probably, you know, it's just a throwback to some ancient time that doesn't really apply anymore. Well, Paul, the apostle, gets on his knees to pray. Maybe not, other time, not every time. Elsewhere, he can speak of wanting men to stand and, and raise holy hands. You know, I think about church life maybe 30, 40 years ago, and you go into a church meeting, and maybe you would be the, the strange person who would stand out like a sore thumb, because during worship, you'd stand and raise a hand. And other people might look, maybe this is what actually happened, other people would look at you and go, what are they doing? They're, they're raising a hand. Don't they know how much that draws attention to themselves? Oh, they might think that's about worshipping the Lord, but they want us to notice. Now, you're coming to a meeting like this, worship God. You don't stand out by raising your hands. Like, if you do that, you don't have to do that, but if you do that in either worship or prayer, it's not unusual. Probably someone else is doing it as well. Probably about 20 people in a room like this are doing it at the same time in, in worship and adoration to God. The way now to stand out in worship and prayer is by getting on our knees. And maybe then someone will turn and look and think, nah, who do they think they are trying to show us all up, doing that thing that no one else does anymore? Why? Well, we're coming before a holy father. We're coming before a father who is utterly, utterly holy. 
The angels in heaven are calling out, holy, holy, holy. Because he's pure, he's, he's other, he's not like us. He's, there's, there's nothing in him of any sinister quality. There's no inconsistency. There is, there's no out-of-place aggression. There's, there's nothing that, can, that, that can't be just thoroughly admired, that takes our breath away. And so it's not unusual to see in the Bible when, when encountering God in his holiness, the, the natural, almost inevitable response is that people go to the floor. Woe is me. I'm coming before one who's utterly, purely good. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he would say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy. Could turn to... Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28, reading from there. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. If God moves you to kneel, then get on your knees. In your, in your daily, what, what is your posture for your own time with the Lord? I choose what I find to be the most comfortable seat in the lounge. I sit there. I spend some time with the Lord. And I was thinking about it this morning, I'm thinking, I think I should probably get on my knees today. And other days as well. He is holy. He is pure. He is awesome. He is therefore... An awesome contrast with every earthly human father. Be they good, average, or bad. When, 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 when Jesus teaches the disciples to pray in Luke 11, he poses them this question in Luke 11, verse 11. Which of you fathers... If your son asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake instead. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? There's an acknowledgement there. Note that Jesus didn't say, if you then, though some of you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. There's an acknowledgement. We all fall short. Every human father falls short. There's something similar, again, we could look at in Hebrews. uh, Chapter 12 again. Reading from verse 9, so Hebrews 12, verse 9. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. 
an acknowledgement. A human father may discipline in a way that he thinks is best. It may not actually have been best. It may have been misguided. It would have been imperfect at various points. Maybe it was inconsistent. One child got disciplined in a certain way and the other one managed to get away with it. Oh, is that just me who identifies with that kind of moment? We have a heavenly father who is utterly holy. Everything he does is good. We could all critique our earthly fathers, even if you thought they are amazing, even if you thought he was terrible. We could all critique our earthly fathers. If, can we just make this hypothetical? Hypothetically, if you were to speak to one of my children and say, go on, give us the honest assessment, what's he like? Then after they've waxed lyrical for a little while on some of the things I'm okay at, they'd all be able to say, but not so great at this, or sometimes not so great at that. Um, I was reminded of a Father's Day card uh, that Abigail made for me that might come up on the screen, which which I gratefully received. It might not be so easy to see on there, but... um, on this Father's Day card, rather like a kind of sport trump card, I was, uh, I was being assessed on... Now, this is, this is very clever for a number of reasons. I'm only assessed, you'll notice, on six categories. And maybe that's because a lot of children arrive at Father's Day and think, oh, what does he actually do? But some other little sage... She has since clarified. But you'll note there, you're just led to assume I was being given a percentage, weren't you? 99 out of 100 for fun and barbecue and for caring. But it never states utterly clearly that I was being marked out of 100. Maybe it was a bit more than that. Um, I love the deliberate vagueness of food. Does that mean he's good Eating it, finishing off leftovers, like once in a blue moon actually making something or or something else. And I do get a minus point for joke, which I think is harsh, but she's been very generous in other areas. The, The point is, we can all, if we all got scored, none of it is that impressive. You can find something that's at fault. Wherever you might look. And some of you right now, you know that if you were writing this, you would like, you'd have some more minor scores maybe. It would be a painstaking process because you carry hurt. We, probably to some extent or another, we, we all carry some father issues, things that could have been or should have been different. And because of that, I guess in the church today, there can be a nervousness about addressing God as the Father. We can have archbishops trying to say very subtle and nuanced things, but it kind of just sounds like, oh, we know it's problematic nowadays to refer to God as being the Father. Probably all through history, there have been people who would have good reason to criticize their earthly fathers and can then project that onto God. We can acknowledge that some fathers fail entirely to be this life-giving 
figure of goodness. But I believe that knowing God the Father helps us to navigate through pain that we may have experienced by having an imperfect father. Here is a holy father. Not only so, we could consider the, the word father as well. For this reason, I kneel before the father. God has chosen to reveal himself as the father. Because he is a God who gives life. He is a God who wants to be known. His is a desire and his nature is to relate. We could look at what God the Father was doing before creation. Look at what Jesus says in John's Gospel. Again, this time in chapter 17. And if you want to know what kind of father we have in God, then look to Jesus and look what he says about him and what that reveals. And if you are becoming or have become a father yourself and you're thinking, but my own earthly role model wasn't fantastic, then look at the word of God. Look at Jesus. Look at how he describes his heavenly father. Thank God that you have the same heavenly father and in your relationship with him, you will find the strength and the grace and the courage to follow in his footsteps. Because John chapter 17 verse 24 says this, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So ever entertained your mind? Think, what, what was God doing before creating everything, before creating the universe. What was God like then? Because you see, there was a point before God became creator. But what I want us to see is there was no point at which God decided to become father-like. He has always eternally been the father. He is the everlasting father. That means that fathering and loving and pouring out his life and taking initiative and caring about others is something he's always been. We could think of God as like holding a hand, a deck of cards, and thinking, all oh, right, well, in this, in this situation... Which card shall I, shall I play? Oh, today, and for this person, shall I be the king of hearts? Shall I, shall I lay down my love? Will I, will I, should, I, should I be loving in this situation? And sometimes just informally and flippantly, we can kind of speak in these strange words as though love is something that God opts into. Is he, is he the, today will he be uh, the king of hearts, or might he be the, the king of clubs? As though he has to make this choice. No, he, he is always the active father, the holy father, and the loving father. I love this quote from a guy called Michael Reeves. He wrote, he wrote Since God is, before all things, a father, all his ways 
are beautifully fatherly. It is not that God does being father as a day job only to kick back in the evening as plain old God. It is not that he has a nice blob of fatherly icing on top. He is father all the way down. Thus, all that he does, he does as father. That is who he is. A God, he is light, utter, pure, radiant, good, holiness. He is always that. He doesn't opt into that. He doesn't play it every now and again. He's not playing a game with you. He's always the Holy Father. He is always love. He is who he is in every aspect. A God of love. A God who, who has always determined to give life. And so he would speak to the eternal Son, become incarnate on the occasion of Jesus' baptism, and he would say, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And the wonder of the gospel is that this God, this Father, has known and designed a way from before the creation of the world to bring you and me, countless of millions of people, into that love. That's why it's so important that we understand uh, what Paul will write about being in Christ. You come into this eternal, never-ending pleasure of God. Why? Because by Christ's death on the cross, you are brought in by faith to being in Christ. That is your position. That is your identity if you believe in him and if you've received that. If you have received Christ, you've believed in him, you have received the right to become child of God. That's not vulnerable. He's never going to disown, push away, reject because he's a father. Because he wanted to include us in that love, he created and sent his son to take our place. That all our sin that held us on the outside be utterly dealt with. God is father. We might ponder the question, well, why not mother? Scripture does reveal motherly qualities about God. We could look at Psalm 131 where the psalmist will speak there as, I, I am like a, a, a weaned child with my mother. Before God, I've learned to be content in the presence of God like a child is content in the presence of its mother once weaned. And other places besides. So to believe that God is the Father does not mean the first person of the Trinity is anatomically male. He is spirit. He's dwelling in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen God, but God himself has made himself known. God has chosen his pronouns. God has created male and female in his image. 
And therefore, male and female together represent something of the image of God. So God isn't just elevating and preferring one gender when he calls himself father. But he has chosen his pronouns. He's revealed himself to be God the Father. Jesus has made the way open for us to know him as Father. He has taught us to pray to our Father. He has instructed us to make disciples and baptize people into the name of the Father. The ministry of the Holy Spirit given and poured out into our hearts is to affirm and to help us know deep within our own spiritual beings that we relate to God as Abba Father, that we call out to him in those terms. The Christian faith is personal. The offer of becoming a child of God remains for every individual. And that's the message we carry into the world. To say, I believe in God the Father, is to say, I want everybody to know God as Father. He's the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Or perhaps that could be rendered, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. For us to receive his name is a good thing. Perhaps for many of us, our response might be, well, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. Maybe through personal experience that's been hard. Maybe just through all the messages that we hear in the world that want to downplay the importance of fatherhood. It feels like it could be, therefore, just something to avoid. We live in a time when even archbishops are not clear. We live in a time when people want to rewrite the creed that strengthened believers over hundreds and thousands of years. And it's almost as though you can just now write something on the back of a beer mat. I'll, I'll get people to say that. I believe in a non-binary God whose, plural, whose, whose pronouns are plural. We're living in a time when people are trying to redesign God. How is that going to bless the world? What will bless the world is there being a company of people who've received the truth of God's active, holy, loving, always good fatherhood. That label that Ginny mentioned on the, on the outside of the jumper. It could be something we think, well, I'm, I'm persuaded on the inside. This is what I hold to be the case and true. Privately, it affects my prayer life. But it's not been turned inside out. I believe, but maybe help me in my unbelief, Lord God, because I'm not sure this is something I, I loudly celebrate anymore. Enthuse about, enjoy, or share. And God is coming to us today to say, be turned inside out, on the inside, thoroughly persuaded, on the outside, totally enthusiastic. I want God to know. I want people to know God as Father. Perhaps Paul knows that as he's writing to the Ephesians, that some will perhaps be doubting or unclear 
That's why he's specifying from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Because he knows that some people listening could just be thinking, yeah, well, I get that for the Jews. I'm just, but I'm a Gentile. I'm not quite sh- Does it apply to me in the same way? I'm not quite sure. I, I get that for the men, but I'm a woman. and I, uh, Does it apply in exactly the same way? Well, I'm just not quite sure. I get that for those who've been a Christian for a long time and sit on the first five rows and put their hand up when Ben asks a question. I get that for them. I sit a bit further back. I'm just not quite sure. No, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. He's not into secrecy. He's not into elitism. He's not, he's not just preferring some and ignoring others. He's a God of great love for the whole family. Some of us can be prone to thinking I'm, I'm the outsider. I've been forgotten. I, uh, people don't know me so well. Uh, in some instances, maybe that's actually true. It's, it's not like uh, everyone knows your name. But know that God is your father. That makes you just as much a part of the family. In Galatians, Paul will write this. In Galatians 3, verse 26, So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Is Paul making the point that Jews and Gentiles don't exist anymore? No. Of course they do. But he was saying, insofar as coming into the family of God, it, does, it makes no difference. Paul's not saying there's neither male nor female anymore. Of course there is, though our world is getting confused about it. He's saying to become a child of God and be in the family of God, there's no distinction. Men and women together receiving salvation, all one in Christ Jesus. Let's be freshly persuaded today, I pray. I pray that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened afresh. The chances are for many of us, this is familiar. I'm not telling you something new. But is your inner being strengthened with vibrant faith that you know it to be true? Maybe some of us do need to say, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help me show the label to the world. And that's what I'd like us to pray.